Hi everyone, this is Bailey. I'm just checking in before the episode to let you know that it might sound a little off this week. Andrew and I were recording in the same room, but it doesn't so much sound like it. And that is because we chose the wrong setting on the microphone. I'd like to say it's because our sound recorder still wasn't here, but no, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We done goofed. Uh, Don't worry, the episode is still listenable and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 128 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. I was I wasn't trying to look up how to say hello in Norwegian. <laughs> and my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. So every day we have a different recording setup, and today's very exciting because Andrew and I are in the same room. Dylan is away. That's not the exciting part. The exciting part is that Andrew's here. Yeah, I mean, I've never recorded with just Bailey before. This is a brave new world. Ooh. Bailey, I mean, you got to slow down on these insane announcements. It's so exciting for the pages. I don't know if they can handle it. I know. It's huge. Huge news. Huge news. Andrew's making prayer hands. And this is the kind of awesome stuff I wouldn't have known if we weren't in person. I'm constantly making prayer hands when we record. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it now. He's constantly praying. Um, how is everybody? Um, I'm still in Maine. I'm still on the same trip as Andrew's wedding. Isn't that weird? We forgot to bring her home. <laughs> so this is like a very extended home alone situation for you? It's kind of like a Groundhog Day in that like I was coming up with updates to share and I was like, I guess it's just stuff I've read and puzzles I've done because otherwise nothing's changed. Sounds pretty good. That's like our core audience. So you're batting a thousand. Getting those demos. Nailed it. <laughs> I do have a little bit of shame, but I don't know if it's the time to share. I, I mean, when, when, but now, share your shame. <laughs> yeah, shame, shame away. Well, I went to a local bookstore in our hometown. <gasps> hey, hey, drop that sweet name. Royal River Books. Heck yeah. And I got three books for myself, wow. just as a little treat. <laughs> Bailey, I love how the minute that your your birthday comes along, you're like, thank God, I'm no longer under that curse <laughs> that I put myself under. Once you pop, you can't stop. <laughs> yes. Books like Pringles. You got it. So I got the fourth book in the Court of Thorn and Roses. It's called The Court of Frost and Starlight. Wait. So wait, is it always a court though? Yeah. Okay. yeah. So far. Is it the same? Is it a different court? Is it going through changes? Is it, is, are things happening to its body that it doesn't understand? Are you guys sincerely interested? Because I'll explain. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, 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 I am. I kind of want to read it. Right, can you explain it in a non-spoilery way? Yes. I only want to know what happens to the court, though. None of the characters. Well, okay. So the court, it, there's a fairy realm, right? And there's different sections of the realm. There's the court of spring, the court of summer, the court of winter, the court of like night, and the court of day. And the court of night and day starring Cameron Diaz and Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> The Court of Thorn and Roses refers to the Spring Court. And then the okay. second one, Mist and Fury, is the court. Well, I don't want to say what court it is, because that would be a spoiler. You know, Bailey, I totally thought you weren't going to be able to do it just telling me about the courts, but you delivered. That's great. That's right. All I know is about the courts. I'm a professional. So anyway, so I got that one. And then I got a book called Unlikely Animals by Annie Hartnett. Oh, Josh Hartnett's brother. Um, it's Josh Hartnett's sister, and it is about... Animals that talk, as far as I can tell. It's not really Josh Hartnett's sister, as far as I know. Mm. Um, but I think it takes place in New Hampshire, which made me excited. And I think it's like somebody's hallucinating like an old naturalist talking to them and animals talking. So I'm in for that. So like a psychedelic Dr. Doolittle? Yeah. 
You mean a more psychedelic doctor? <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it, Andrew. And the last one I got is a buzzy book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin who wrote uh, The Story Life of A.J. Fickrey, which I really liked about a bookseller love story. And this one has been very much hyped, and it's about the love story, question mark, of two people that start a video game company together. Well, that's cool. I wonder if it'll end up being a tale told by an idiot, though. But will it signify anything? Signifying nothing. But it'll be full of sound and fury. (gasps) (laughs) It's warm in this room. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Does anybody else have any shame that they got like me? Nope. No shame. No shame for me. I will have shame next episode, almost guaranteed. What? I have gift certificates for my birthday slash Christmas that I still haven't used. And Pages, no, your birthday is in March. You're a Pisces boy. I'm a a sensitive, sad Pisces boy. (laughs) So that's pretty old gift card. Yeah. Nice. What do you guys do when every time I get these gift cards to our local place in Maine, they're like, do you want to join our rewards program? And I never know what to say. And every year I kind of choose a different thing because it's like, well, I'm only here like twice a year. And they're like, but you should join for the year anyway. I choose to pretend I don't hear what they're saying. (laughs) Andrew just gives them prayer hands and then backs out of the store. For the listeners, I did just do prayer hands. He did do it. Um, I don't know. I, I must be going to different independent bookstores than you because I don't, I don't think I've ever been asked to join a rewards program. You must be going to some really business-minded small businesses. I don't know. They're smart, and they always say that I'm going to earn enough rewards bucks to get a free book, but it's never the case. It sounds like an adult version of like the read challenge where you get a pizza, except you have to pay for the pizza and you pay many like hundreds of dollars more than the pizza is worth. I really want someone to bring back Book It. That's my dream. That's what this whole podcast is about. That's true. Toby, how are you? How is life in Humboldt? It's amazing. I went to the river yesterday. It's uh, the place I live is uh, one of those great little like microclimates where it's cold and foggy every single day where I live. But then you can drive like three miles up the mountain and it's 95 degrees and you swim in the river. It's great. I'm living my best wild man life up here. Wait, so are you suggesting that that would be a perfect place for the Twilight Vampires to live? (laughs) And uh, I have been really enjoying my time hosting this podcast on Humboldt Hot Air, shout out. Um, it's an online radio station where you can hear me every Wednesday at 2 Pacific time. I'll give a little extra commentary on our new episodes and on our off weeks. I'm airing old episodes, like beginning of the podcast episodes, which let me tell you guys has been an experience. Do they hold up? They do hold up. I do like them. I'm like, oh, these, these people are cool. I like them. Um, but we did some stuff that I forgot we did like and I won't go through it all but the single thing that I think just one episode disappeared we never discussed it we weren't like oh we're gonna do this intentionally do you guys remember we used to describe in detail the cover of every book we read oh yeah yeah. and we used to talk about the bookmark that we used and we used to talk about the countries where people downloaded us those are the things I remember that we just kind of were like nah (laughs) (laughs) that one too I think we talked about stopping doing the country thing but the book cover one is so strange because it's like I don't remember ever being like let's not do the book cover thing anymore it's not a terrible idea but we did it like you know you can hear it in the early episodes it's like obviously required we're like and now is the part of the podcast where we talk about the book cover. Would it make you happy if I talked about my book cover today? It's going to be really weird if you guys don't talk about your book covers now. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Yeah, that's what's up with me. I'm glad you're having fun. That's really cool. It's nice to go back in time. I have a shout out. Guys, people are hating on it, but the new Persuasion on Netflix, two thumbs up. It's great. Okay. I believe Slate called it one of the worst films of all time, and I, I could not disagree more. It's it's fun. It's like Fleabag meets Persuasion. Loved it. Yeah, and then, hey, here's the thing. 
I don't think it thinks it's high art. I don't know why anybody else is going to try to treat it like high art. Have a good time and stop being a hater. It nails the assignment. It's funny. It's fun. And it has some cute boys in it. And a truly excellent performance of the youngest sister. Yeah. Stand out Oscars for days. Everybody knows that Mary's the best character in Persuasion. No question. Color me persuaded. I'll have to check it out. Bailey and Andrew recommend. Listeners imagine stars shooting out of us. <laughs> I suppose I can tepidly recommend The Gray Man, which I guess we can tie into this because it's based on a book. I don't know. It was fun. But now we're verging on movie podcast territory, which is well owned by other people. Look, you guys want to talk about Gray Man the book? Because I read Gray Man the book. You did? Yeah. I don't know that we do want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a gray area. It was so paint by numbers. It was very yeah. like, wow, this guy just wrote this book to make this movie. You could tell that he was just counting down yeah. the days until they asked him to adapt it. Yeah, I, I kept like, I mean, all of the scenes, all the fight scenes have things in them that would not translate to a book that makes the movie cool. Like there's a scene where he's like fighting with a bunch of smoke grenades. And it's like, I imagined you, you can't write the scene where it's like, and there was pink smoke everywhere. It was so cool. And he like came out and it looked all pink and crazy. I'm like, that wouldn't work. Toby, what are you talking about? You just wrote it. That's true. I mean, copyright, copyright. You're my witnesses. Andrew, I'm dying to know. I know you've had a bunch of these like historical books on your list for a while now. And I'm really curious, how did you like Children of Ash and Elm? Well, you know, Toby, um, I'd love to tell you. And I'm, you know, I'm going to tell everybody, too. Oh, I can know, too? Yeah. Um, so, yes, Toby, I read Children of Ash and Elm by Neil Price. It has a subtitle, which is A History of the Vikings. And let's get into it. Here's my little intro for the book. In Children of Ash and Elm, Neil Price, an accomplished archaeologist and researcher, has compiled one of the first comprehensive looks on the Viking Age. Relying less on the dubious written sources and mostly on findings based in scientific discoveries and excavations, the book presents Vikings not as creatures from nightmares or grandiose warriors, but as flesh-and-blood people. Down to their diet and beliefs, Price gives the reader a full picture of the people whose place in popular culture has long been dominated by misconceptions. Ooh, I like that dubious. Yeah. I like to drop a dubious in now and then. I hate it when Andrew drops a dubious. It stinks for days. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? Um, So this is going to be an interesting review because it's hard to say more about the book and like what the book's about than saying it is about Vikings. But Mm -hmm. okay, even even that's interesting. He sort of, in his intro, he's like, "Mm, I probably really shouldn't use the term Viking. I didn't know you weren't supposed to use that term. Well, it's not, it's because it doesn't really represent, they wouldn't have thought of themselves as that, really. It's like, or calling that whole time Viking times is just not quite accurate. But he uses it because he's like, I don't really have another word for it. Gotcha. So yeah, I mean, it it tracks them. and, And like I said, in that paragraph, it's less about like, trying to track what was written because not a lot was written. Most of it, the stuff that survives in written form from that is either older and like trying to recreate it or is like fiction. Or dubious. Or, or du- dubious and like you can learn some things from what the mythology and like the stories were, but you can't like say that that happened. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to approach history from this lens where he just kind of has to throw out like, you know, we're going to work with some of the stuff, but mostly this is going to be about what we done dug up. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, before we get too deep into it, just to like make sure I know we're thinking about the right people, we're talking about like, you know, their mythology is like Thor and like ice giants and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, it's like Thor, frost giants, Taika Waititi, Tessa Thompson. (laughs) Really ripped Natalie Portman. Yeah. 
Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, got it. I'm dialed in. Yeah, I gotcha. No, so yeah, that's the, the mythology we're working with, talking specifically about the peoples of Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Iceland, and then some extending places from there, from around the late 600s to 1100, is about when the most of the action of this book takes place. Obviously, time is, is sort of permeable about this. That's cool, but that is like a big group of people in a long time, so I could see how mm-hmm. they wouldn't want to be identified with one name. Yeah, so and then it, it wasn't also a culture that really had like a dominating dynasty for a really long time. There were like temporary kings who then got usurped, blah, 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 blah. Is it Beowulf people? Beowulf is involved. Cool. Beowulf's there. Yeah, he was a thane. Thane is Denmark. Yes, though actually he might have been from Sweden. Whatever. Hey. You're an expert now. I I have read a book now. (laughs) Um, So... Let's go into some deets here. So it, it was interesting, um, and I actually do want to shout out a couple more things before I go into Orcs and Elves, which is just, he, the book is full of cool things where he's like, you just got to remember that you can't conceive of how these people thought. Watch me try, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, what you've got to remember about these people is you can't think about the world from our perspective and put that onto them. Like, these people were genuine flesh and blood people, had the same concerns as us, but they genuinely believed and not even just believed, knew that their neighbor across the street could shapeshift into a wolf. He just did it. Whoa. Like, they just knew that. They just knew that. They didn't see it, but it was like, it, that's what happens. So it's I love it. Because he's like, you got to stop thinking about these things as things they believed or didn't believe. They knew these things. They knew it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, to go a little bit more into Orcs and Elves. So like, keep that as like a central thing. And what Neil wants to do is like create from the ground up, shed your misconceptions and join Neil Price in the longbow. (laughs) of history. <laughs> Ooh. Describe the cover. Oh, yes. Okay, so now we're going to, before I go too far, cover. A green sort of mottled with yellow base. We've got the prow of a longboat facing towards us, and it oh. says, History of the Vikings, Children of Ash and Elm, Neil Price, the Children of Ash and Elm, in gold that shines. Gilded. Are you, like, scared that the longboat's gonna hit you? It's gonna, like, crush you. Yeah, it's coming yeah, right okay. at you. Yeah. And then there's some cool, like, Nordic knots details on the side. Kind of runic looking. Ooh, does it have pictures? It, it does have pictures. It's one of those books that has pictures in the middle. You know what I mean? Ooh, yeah, I love those. Ooh, I'm gonna look at that later. Although, like, I never really look at those pictures. Like, usually if it's in the middle, it'll be like, this picture refers to, like, you know, chapter one. And I'm like, well, why didn't you just put it in chapter one? Like, now I have to think back to what chapter one was like. And then sometimes it'll spoil the future. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it's all the way to the end of the book. You know what? Now I think about it, I don't like it when it's in the middle. Get into the orcs and elves. What is the equivalent in Viking of orc and elf? Ooh. Thor and Loki? Uh, that's close. I mean, they don't, they did not like trolls. Ooh, okay. So trolls would be probably the, the orc equivalent. Mm-hmm. Um, and elves, it would still be elves. They like elves. Nice. Okay. Elves and trolls. Going into my elves and trolls, I guess. <laughs> it's got fascinating information on a subject that I had like no grounding in or background other than like thinking about the Vikings like the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> um, overall, it was really interesting. Um, and it sort of feeds into a second elf here, which is that Price has a really clear writing style and balances like dry information with helpful context and even some jokes. Um, like he keeps referring to the settlement in Russia as Deadwood, which I thought was funny. <laughs> He's like, it's like Deadwood, but with Vikings. <laughs> Let's talk about the show Deadwood for a second. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's charming. He's very nice. He's also like, I don't want to get political here, but he's like, he's an ally. I like him. He kept us being like, just because there's not records of gay Vikings does not mean that there were not tons of gay Vikings. Get over yourselves. Love it. He's clearly casting some shade on some other researchers. <laughs> so it, he relates the information in a way that's really easy to follow, 
even though like sometimes he's literally talking about the minutiae of what can be found in like excavated toilets. He's like, one time I was in York and I was excavating a toilet that was waterlogged, so I still smelled their poop. Whoa. But here's what we found. Wow. <laughs> um, so that was really interesting because he um, keeps it going in a way that's never going to be like scandalous or salacious. But he, this book could have been a lot more boring than it was. And he does a really good job of keeping it interesting. Also, um, there's a great balance of the like mythological stuff or sources of the dubious variety. Because mm-hmm. he calls out that things are likely untrue or like things couldn't have happened, but he recognizes that it's interesting, lets you know that it's okay to enjoy this part of the story, and also like extrapolates out what it can tell you about the people itself. Because he's far more concerned with like the day-to-day life of people than like the kings or the mythological figures, which I was a little surprised by. But it's a lot more like we can tell that they ate this kind of bread. Mm-hmm. Like, we know you want to know about the Yule Cat, but instead we got to talk about the bread. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to give a couple quick quotes from the book. I'm imagining all of them are going to have to do with the Deadwood city. <laughs> no, I should have marked those. This was early on in the book on page 39. I thought it was helpful context for, like, just giving you an example of what we think about with Vikings versus what was true and how that's just sort of, we have to sort of shed our preconceived notions. The extent to which Vikings have suffered from stereotyping is more than matched by how their gods and supernatural beings have been perceived. In the popular imagination, the divine world of Asgard holds a single hall, Valhalla, actually a Victorian misspelling of Valhall, home of Odin and famous worldwide today as Viking Heaven, the destination for the worthy dead and synonymous with the North afterlife itself. However, the myths are clear that Valhall was just one of many such residences, as each of the major gods lived on their own estate. These would have been understood as a main hall and surrounding huts, barns, and stables for the household and animals, god-sized reflections of the manners and elites of Midgard. Asgard was very much a landscape, a world in its own right. I didn't know that. I feel like Bailey just summarized my feeling of reading every good nonfiction book, or it's just like, ooh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> Last quote I'll throw in is an example of the like thing that I started the re- review with of um, how they like, just knew something was true, how they just knew that their neighbor could turn into a wolf at night sometimes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. This is him discussing the hidden people, um, which is huldufolk, um, which is what specifically in Iceland they call the dwarves and elves and things that are... Elves went too far. The elves went too far. This is on page 56. The Alfar, or elves, were probably the most prevalent of the Norse nature beings, and they were often in direct contact with humans. They could be influential in the prosperity of a farm as they were able to harm livestock or crops if they chose, and keeping on their good size was highly advisable. The average Viking Age person probably rarely felt the presence of the gods, but putting butter out for the elves living in the rock behind your house was part of the farmyard routine. Who do you think ate that butter? I think the elves ate that butter. Okay, you're right. Um, but it's really interesting. So he presents the mythology and like the implications on it from day to day because it's like this is we can look at it with our modern sensibilities, but this is what they genuinely knew to be true. So they genuinely did this because they believed that they the elves would make you sick or or or, or kill you. I always wonder when you hear about like you know societies that were much more credulous in that way. If there was like not one or two like kind of like emo teenagers who are like, I don't even freaking believe in the elves. I don't want to give up my butter. You know, like <laughs> mom and dad take me to elf church every Sunday and I don't want to go. <laughs> you have to go to youth group, Haldar. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so those are those are my elves. elves. Um, I have a few orcs, but they're not crazy. Um, in general, it was hard to stay completely engaged with it. I think it's just kind of a muscle I don't have to stick with nonfiction books that are this long because it's, it's really interesting stuff, but it at some point doesn't really get beyond like, oh, that's mildly interesting because it doesn't have the story mm-hmm. hook of, of fiction or even more sensationalized histories a la a... Um, Eric Larson. Uh, uh, yeah. I knew you were coming for Eric Larson. <laughs> 
but it, that's that's not really a huge ticket. I think it's just not something I've done enough, so I don't. It was like a new experience that I found like a, t- took me a little longer to read than I was expecting. I've been finding that recently my nonfiction consumption has been almost exclusively podcasts or audiobooks. It's like I'm used to taking it in that way. I don't know. Yeah, why. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I should try the next one of these um, in purely audio to see if I have a different experience. I mean, I know it hits the same parts of your brain and, and whatnot, but I would just be curious if I engage with it a little differently. A little different, yeah. Yeah. It dragged some a bit in some of the chapters, as you might tell. Some things are a little more exciting when they're talking about like funeral rites. That's really interesting. When they're talking about latrines, it's a little more like okay, <laughs> <laughs> but that's to be expected. Um, and the last orc I sort of have about this is as much as I praised the style of like how he approached it and how I think this is why this book is sort of groundbreaking in the history community, which apparently it is in terms of like what he's discovered. I did want some of the more traditional history. Like I wanted to know what Eric Bloodaxe got up to in his battles. And I wanted to know what like- I do too. Yeah, like what those um, those historical figures were. Because he specifically sort of, he adds them in when they're relevant, but it isn't as much like a chronicle of kings. I just wanted a little more of that, but that's me being greedy. Sorry, Neil. And yeah, I could go on further, um, but if this is sounds like something you're interested in, I recommend it. I'm going to go with four stars. I'm going to keep it on my shelf. Um, it was really interesting. I just can't quite go to five because it didn't like demand that I read it. But yeah. If that's yeah. the only real criticism I have, it's still a really good read. And if the subject's interesting, pick it up. Nice. Love it. Sweet. Um, Toby, do you have any facts, not on Vikings, but on the Viking man, Neil Price? Yes, I do. How much of it is about how much time he spends in a toilet? <laughs> Uh, None of it, sadly. Neil Stupel Price is an English archaeologist specializing in the study of Viking Age Scandinavia and the archaeology of shamanism. He is currently a professor at the Department of Archaeology and Ancient History at Uppsala University, Sweden. He was born in southwest London. Uh, He got his BA in archaeology at the University of London, and he wrote his first book, The Vikings in Brittany, uh, in 1989. So he's been publishing for quite a while. Interesting. He must have published young because he still looks like a fresh-faced little cherub. I know. (laughs) Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, yeah, he still looks great. Maybe it's all that Uppsala air. He undertook his first doctoral research from 1988 through 1992 at the University of York before he moved to Sweden, where he completed his PhD at the University of Uppsala in 2002. In 2001, he edited an anthology entitled The Archaeology of Shamanism for Rutledge, and the following year he published and defended his doctoral thesis, The Viking Way. And The Viking Way would be critically appraised as one of the most important studies of the Viking Age and pre-Christian religion by other archaeologists like Matthew Townend and Martin Carver. You know those guys? Oh yeah, totally. To- totally. Yeah, we actually uh-huh. we're on a WhatsApp and we we go we go to pizza a lot. Shout out to my Carve Boys, which is what Mountain Carver's fans are called. Um, it's actually a little bit difficult because he has not given very many interviews that are written down. He's on a lot of podcasts. Oh, just like the Vikings themselves, an oral <laughs> tradition. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a link. Uh, and Pedro's your boy is lazy, so I only got the written stuff. I did not listen to other podcasts. Anyway, um, this is a description of himself in his own words from the Uppsala University website. I was appointed to the established chair of archaeology late in 2014. The job has roots going back to 1662, when Olaf Virelius was made, quote, professor of the fatherland's antiquities, making it probably the oldest archaeological post of its kind in the world. There have been long gaps in his tenure since Virelius's time, but it has been continuously filled since 1914. He says, my research interests fall into two broad categories, embracing the early medieval north 
century, 400 to 1100 CE, especially the Viking Age, and the historical archaeology of the Asia-Pacific region from the 1700s to the present. That'd be weird to put on his Tinder profile. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like I'm reading his bio. This is a little bit of a speech about his kind of development of his interest in the subject. He says, I developed a fascination for the culture of the Vikings and their world during my early teens. My undergraduate studies in London offered the first opportunity to engage seriously with Scandinavia and the Viking world and set the pattern of my working life ever since. My specific current interests include Scandinavian and Germanic pre-Christian religion, ritual, sorcery, and magic, Viking Age mentality and worldview, what could be called the Northern Mind, Viking Age gender, sexuality, and identity, Viking Age mortuary behavior and funerary drama, the Scandinavian experience in the Frankish Empire, the Vikings in the East, including contacts with Islam and the Silk Rose, the social-cultural impact of natural disasters and climate change. Over the last 25 years or so, I have lectured and traveled widely in the Viking and circumpolar world and directed research projects in France, Iceland, Russia, and Sampi, besides several here in Sweden. But what do you do for fun? That sounds pretty fun to me. <laughs> I mean, that, that, he's, he's married to his work, guys. So, and then he, here he is speaking about um, his kind of, the university expects him to kind of undertake a large project as the professor. Um, so he's describing it here. And it's a 10-year program. Uh, he has to kind of set out and set in motion. He's in the middle of it right now. At the heart of the project is one of Sweden's greatest archaeological treasures, the largest cemetery of ship burials ever found, the classic site of Valsgard in the upland. For more than 400 years, each generation interred its prominent people of both sexes here in magnificent boat graves and cremations filled with objects and animals. Excavated from the 1920s to the 1950s, together with nearby sarts of Gamla Uppsala, Vendel, and Ultuna, they tell the story of Sweden and its growth from the heart of the Malar Valley. However, the very richness and complexity of the Valsgard graves has meant that they have never been fully researched and published. The definitive analysis of the cemetery and the society behind the burials is one of our main priorities. As a crucial counterpart to this work, on an old find is the exploration of a new one, the extraordinary and exactly contemporary remains of a big toilet. Just kidding. Uh, of a central Swedish raiding party buried in two ships in the Estonian seashore where they came to grief at the very start of the Viking Age. These excavations undertaken at Salome on Saramena in 2008-2012 mark arguably the most significant Viking discovery of the last hundred years, and support for the Estonian team's analysis and publication is also incorporated in this project. Combining Valsgard and Salome, we have the unique opportunity to reveal the world of the early Vikings at home and away in a project of a kind never before attempted. Emphasis mine. Wow. I mean, I didn't know that. It's just like reading a nonfiction book. Wait. What's a boat grave? I thought I thought that all Vikings burned people at sea. Oh, I wish I, ha I wish we had someone who had just read a big book on Viking history who could tell us about this. Well, no, they were often were often interred within boats that were then buried under mounds mm -hmm. with a lot of their their wealth around them. Cool. Um, and other cool things which may come up in the game. We'll see. Ooh. But yeah, no, there were, you can see there's a, been a lot of them found. A lot in England were found. I think Sutton Hoo is a famous one where they, they find a lot of like crazy uh, um, like sacrifices and, uh, and, and, and goods. And the one he's referring to features in the book, the one that he's researching. And I think this book was also part of his like residency in, in Sweden. It was like his beginning mm -hmm. of it. He wrote this book and then he started researching more stuff. Man, the guy that found all those boat graves must have been like, yes. 
I freaking did it. Prayer hands. <laughs> uh, so the rest of this, I have a short little snippet here from an interview, one, a rare written interview with Imagining History, which is a history blog you can check out. Um, Imagining History asks him, what inspired you to want to research and write about the Vikings? And Neil answers, I've always been interested in history, but my mid-teens, I started to read the Icelandic sagas at the same time as several Viking documentary series by Magnus Magnusson and Michael Wood were also showing on TV. I started working on archaeological excavations when I was 17 and went to university to study the Vikings properly. And that was that. Here I am nearly 40 years later. So maybe that explains why he published so early because he was freaking excavating when he was 17. He's got a type and that's cool. <laughs> uh, the blog asks, what is the most bizarre Viking fact that you've discovered? Discovered during your research. And Andrew, I want to know if this is covered in the book. He has a simple answer. So far as I know, no item of Viking clothing has ever been found with pockets. Yes, that is in the book. Oh. The pockets are great. They are, but he's uh, he said they probably had lots of pouches. <laughs> what is a pocket but a pouch in your pants? <laughs> anyway, um, after that gem of wisdom, what is, uh, this is the last question here. What is one Viking, quote, fact that we all think we know to be true that actually isn't true at all? And Neil answers, I guess the obvious one is that they had horns on their helmets. They did not. But I suppose another one is that the berserkers used mushrooms or similar to get their rage on. There's no evidence for this whatsoever. And that makes me kind of sad. Neil didn't say that last part. I said that. It is sad. If it'll make you feel better, the Vikings did use hallucinogens, just not, just not the berserkers. That does make me feel better. Um, and there you go. There's a kind of, you know, slight portrait of Neil, a little bit about what he thinks about his life work. And, uh, you know, next time Andrew reads another one of Neil's books, I'll give you more. Sounds good. Sounds Neil. <laughs> so that's awesome. Okay, so The Children of Ash and Elm by Neil Price, four stars. So, Bailey, we're leaving a world of runes. Yeah. But perhaps we can enter a world of runing. <laughs> oh! oh boy oh boy he's dabbing all over the place <laughs> oh i saw that one coming at me like a viking boat like a long boat that cannot be stopped <laughs> <laughs> i read a book this week by sally rooney the runester rune the magnificent runester. I read Beautiful World, Where Are You by Sally Rooney. Is this our first uh, trifecta for an author? I believe it is. Wow. We've had a fair, a fair amount of doubles, mm -hmm. um, but I think this is our first trifecta. It is. I don't envy Toby for having to come up with facts because we've done Normal People, Conversations with Friends, and this is Sally Rooney's latest and third novel. All right. You'll never guess what it's about. So it's Sally Rooney, so I'm going to guess spies. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the deep state. <laughs> nope, it's about four white people and desire and malaise. That's my logline. A, a, a startling uh, departure of, of form for Sally Rooney. I know. Normal people had two white people and malaise and desire. This one, four. Um, no, okay, I'm being facetious. I need to be serious. It's Sally Rooney. Okay. Whereas normal people in conversations with friends are more coming-of-age novels, has younger protagonists, um, this one follows two friends who are in their 30s, Alice and Eileen. Ancient. So yeah, old. Yeah, Oldsters. Ugh. Their lives are already over. So friends, Alice and Eileen, they met in college, I believe in Dublin, like, shocker. <laughs> probably trendy. <laughs> the other two met at like the rave scene in Dubai, right? Yeah, to totally. And in space. Um, Alice is a um, really successful writer right out of college who has written two popular books and is working on a third. Wink. Okay. And Eileen is the editor of a literary magazine, also Wink. And they send letters to each other, which are very philosophical and talk about the state of the world and Marxism and beauty and that kind of stuff. And in between those letters, we see each of their lives. Alice is renting this big house on the coast of Ireland, and Eileen is living in the city of Dublin. Eileen is 
pursuing her um, sort of longtime will will they won't they Simon they grew up together they had crushes on each other but they have just never really gotten together um, so she's sort of pursuing Simon and Alice is pursuing Felix who's a guy she met on Tinder Felix is a local boy who works at a warehouse who's kind of a jerk but handsome. Wow. He's kind of an instigator. He's kind of a troublemaker. You know what I mean? I freaking love those kind of people. I know. They're the best. So this is happening and then they're writing letters and then, you know, eventually they they get together and you see them interact in person. Cool. So that's the plot. There's not a lot of plot, as you can tell. It's kind mm-hmm. of a plotless book, um, which, you know, is typical of Sally Rooney and we love her for it. In this case, the book is almost 400 pages long and it was a lot. It felt like it dragged a bit because there's not a plot not a lot of plot the characters you could say are mostly defined by their relationships and you know i would say that they're kind of dubious like it's kind of like just Ooh. get it together just tell your person that you like them or felix stop being a jerk mm-hmm. so I, I will go out and say right now that i didn't like it as much as the other two roonies normal people mm. in conversations with friends um not to spoil but that was something from the beginning i was like this is not what i like this is not the rooney i want this is not the room you're looking for. Exactly. Bailey, I have a question. I'm like, my, I thought about reading this with you kind of to like prepare for this podcast, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it because I found that I really love normal people. And then I read conversations with friends and enjoyed it as well, but found it to be very, very similar. And then I was like, I don't know, like this, uh, this one sounds like very similar again. I just don't know how much more I want of this flavor. Was that kind of an experience you had reading this book or was it different enough? It is not different enough. It is very, very similar. Um, The biggest difference, I would say, is these letters that punctuate, you know, every four chapters or so. But those were my least favorite part because they Mm. just didn't ring true for me. It felt like two friends, two intellectuals, like trying to sound intellectual. And I wanted more about the actual characters, their emotions, their history, their relationships, and less about their feelings on, you know, the patriarchy. Like there was just a disconnect between the letter version and the real version of the person. And maybe that was the point, but I didn't need it for 350 pages. All right. So I, I feel like I'm being harsh to the runester. So I'm going to give some elves and then a few orcs, which I've already hinted at. This book, it is a light blue book. It has four people on it that are in different yellow blobs, correct? I think you might have seen it on tote bags. <laughs> or yeah. on bucket hat. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So Sally Rooney's prose. We know the runester. She's very matter of fact. It's kind of like... I'm sorry, Bailey, but you know, if the if the runester crows before dawn, then you're going to die that day. It also brings on Ragnarok. <laughs> there we go. Okay. So this matter of fact prose, like kind of like Hemingway, can feel really distancing because it reads like stage directions. Like the woman walked to the door. The woman picked up her phone and looked down at her phone, etc. Yeah. But then sometimes the way she phrases a sentence perfectly encapsulates the quotidian just like hits you and you're like oh i feel seen so i'm going to read a little Mm -hmm. bit of that this is page 26 for the rest of the afternoon in the office the woman worked on the same text editing interface opening new files moving apostrophes around and deleting commas after closing one file and before opening another she routinely checked her social media feeds her expression her posture did not vary depending on the information she encountered there a news report about a horrific natural disaster a photograph of someone's beloved domestic pet a female journalist complaining about death threats a recondite joke requiring familiarity with several other internet jokes in order to be even more vaguely comprehensible a 
passionate con condemnation of white supremacy, a promoted tweet advertising a health supplement for expectant mothers. Nothing changed in her outward relationship to the world that would allow an observer to determine what she felt about what she saw. Then, after some length of time, with no apparent trigger, she closed the browser window and reopened the text editor. Occasionally, one of her colleagues would interject with a work-related question, and she would answer, or someone would share a funny anecdote with the office, and they would all laugh, but mostly the work continued quietly. So you, you get a sense, like she's yeah. painting yeah. a picture and she, I'm just like, oh yeah, I guess I do just kind of stare blindly at my Facebook, no matter what I'm seeing. And I never thought mm -hmm. of it that way. Thanks, Runester. Yeah, I I'm, find myself really impressed because I can't imagine, I mean, I don't know what she did before she graduated, but she was pretty successful, pretty young. She must have had some really brutal office jobs that she yeah. pulls from because she does that in, in um, conversations with friends too, where it's like, oh God, the, the office life she describes is so accurate and so tedious. Yeah, yeah. So, so there were moments that I really loved about that. Um, there's a lot of steamy sex scenes. I think they're well-written. There's some scenes that feel incredibly cinematic. Maybe it's because she's been helping, you know, work on the adaptations of her books. There's one scene where she, where two characters look at each other um, in the middle of a wedding and they like go through a giant montage in their head of their entire history and all their worries in one second. And you can exactly picture what that would look like on screen. That's enough. Hmm. That was cool. Good job, Sally. <laughs> um, and then lastly, she does really hit sort of these poignant emotional moments that you feel like I know exactly what you mean. Um, so I'm going to give one more quote of that. Page 173. I was tired. It was late. I was sitting half asleep in the back of a taxi, remembering strangely that wherever I go, you are with me. And so is he. And that as long as you both live, the world will be beautiful to me. Which I thought is like, oh, that's really lovely. Yeah. So those are all my elves. With that said, time for the trolls. I thought this was overly long. I needed more plot. I already said that. I didn't like the letters. I already said that. Felix is a jerk. I said that. I thought that Alice was an obvious stand-in for Sally Rooney, and I didn't respond to that. Um, there are many sections, especially in the philosophic letters, where she talks about like her perception as a very famous, rich author, and how that doesn't jibe with her, and how her books aren't really about anything except people getting together and breaking apart, but how that's really about everything in the world. And I don't know, I don't know how you guys feel about these like Romana clefts, but like I don't like it when it's like, but I know that this is just you. I don't know what that word means, and I won't respond to it. Yeah, I don't really know either. It's like when it's a story but it's obviously not a story and people are like this is fictional it's like is it oh all this to say i i just thought i found it kind of a slog to get through i had to really focus and on my reading yeah. which is not what i expect with sally rooney but ultimately once the characters get to be in the same place i found it more propulsive ultimately i'm going to give it three stars but i was worried it was going to be a two for a bit oh but you know you can't always have hits with that said a lot of people really love this book but that's just my opinion yeah i think i'll i'll, I'll try to read it in the next few months at some point because I'd be curious to compare and contrast our reactions. Yeah. Yeah. But Toby, I'm really curious what facts you have that we don't already know about the runester. Wait, did she, was she a debater in, in university? <laughs> what university did she go to? I'm not even going to tell you. Well, actually, I am going to tell you that. As you may have heard, Pages, if you're new to the podcast, uh, we've covered Sally Rooney's life twice before. So check out episodes number whatever they are for when we review those books. But yeah, so I'm going to give you like a little snippet of her bio. And then the rest of it's going to be from an interview with Waterstones about this very book. Um, so I'm going to say the fact that makes us all sad every time we hear it. Um, Sally Rooney was born uh, the 20th of February, 1991. 
Sigh. <laughs> she is an Irish author and screenwriter. So far, she's published three novels, of which we have all covered on this podcast. Conversations with Friends in 2017, Normal People 2018, which was her real smash hit, and Beautiful World, Where Are You in 2021. Normal People was adapted into a 2028 television series by Hulu, and Rooney's work has garnered critical acclaim and commercial success. She's regarded as one of the foremost millennial writers. And that's all you get from me on her bio. We've already covered her before. The rest of this is from an interview with Waterstone. Um, I have to say, it's a pretty good interview. Um, the interviewer asks, and it's uncredited again as to the interviewer. So whoever you are, you ask good questions. Well, um, it's the gremlin who lives in the basement of Waterstones who does all the interviews. Oh, yes. Beautiful gremlin, where are you? <laughs> in the basement of Waterstones. <laughs> So the interviewer asks, may we start with the title of the book? Your notes to the text tell us that it's a translation of a phrase from a poem by Schiller, later set to music by Schubert, and then taken as the title of the 2018 Liverpool Biennial, which is where it caught your eye. I wonder what connotations it has for you and what feelings and thoughts you think it might prompt in readers. The Runester replies. <laughs> I first came across the phrase uh, when I was listening to a BBC radio broadcast about the Liverpool Biennial. Um, the Biennial, if you don't know, is a gigantic arts celebration, big arts festival. That broadcast, an, uh, an episode of the Saturday Review, used an audio clip of Ian Bostridge and Julius Drake performing Schubert's D677, which I thought was surpassingly beautiful. And the phrase stayed in my mind. That was during the summer of 2018 when I started to work on the project that would later develop into this novel. In the autumn, I actually did get to visit the Biennial, and it was around that time that I decided to use the same title for my book. Obviously, the phrase connotes a certain disillusionment with contemporary life. Obviously a pretty good match for Rooney's work. Um, and taking it out of context, this disillusionment might be straightforwardly nostalgic. The beautiful world might be imaginatively located in some specific historic moment, or it might be vaguer and more diffuse. For a while, I became kind of fascinated with the recurrence of this motif throughout the history of literature, the ubi sunt tradition in Latin poetry, the prominence of ruins and decay in Anglo-Saxon literature, and the 18th century poets like Schiller comparing the relative aesthetic poverty of the modern era to the imagined splendor of ancient life. I think this sense of a beautiful world passing away can feel quite contemporary because of our political moment and because of the climate crisis. But in fact, our cultural terminology for this experience long pre-exists our present circumstances, and I find that interesting. So that is the reason for the title of the book. But the interviewer asks, Beautiful World, Where Are You? revolves around four characters who between them give us depictions of established and brand new relationships, friendships, both same and opposite sex, romantic love, and a less definable sort of platonic love. There's something so playful about the way that you present all the different permutations of attachment and affection between the characters. Can you tell us a little bit about how you approached that? The Runester replies, it took me a long time to work out how to tell the story of this novel. It was difficult for me to answer any of the basic questions that a novelist has to answer. Whose story is this? When does it begin? When does it end? Who tells it? And so on. None of the narrative techniques I had used in my previous two books, first-person past tense narration in the first novel and close third-person present tense in the second, seemed to be of any use to me this time around. I had to work out a new kind of narrative voice, or at least new to me, in order to make sense of the story I wanted to tell. At the same time, it's a very simple story. It's about four characters and relationships between them. I just had to put some effort into finding the right shape, structure, and voice to convey the novel that I knew I wanted to write. Okay, no tea, no shade, no pink lemonade. But if the only difference in your books is just like the tense and person. Devil's advocate here, I don't think that's exactly what she's saying. That's she's what saying, she said. Well, she said it didn't fit the story she wanted to tell, which is different than saying I'm writing the exact same thing, but changing. But that it's also about relationships and friendships. I'm Team Rooney here because I haven't been dissuaded yet. All right. Mm -hmm. A little bit of dubiousness between our siblings here. Love it. We're going to have a fist fight. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the interviewer asks, uh, and this will this will pertain to one of Bailey's orcs, I believe. One of 
the four, and perhaps the one who we might think of as the novel's lead character, is a novelist, Alice. Novels with novelists in them are often tricky terrain. What drew you to it? And Sally, is, I think, is a little defensive here. Uh, she says, all novels have novelists in them. The novelist may be hiding in the guise of the narrator or hiding even further behind the narrator as a structuring authorial consciousness, but they can never be entirely absent, whether they are hidden or not. In some ways, writing books is just a job, and I don't think most readers care very much what the principal characters of a novel do for a living, as long as a novel is interesting. I don't know if there really are readers who object to reading about novelists on principle, but if so, the novel might not be the genre for them. That's what we call a pivot. Yeah, I would say a little prickly uh, on that response. Uh, and here's our last question. Do you see a relationship between your books in terms of theme or style? Is there a Rooney world that they all inhabit or do they feel more separate than that? Which I believe is this interviewer's way of asking why your book's so similar. <laughs> And the Runester replies, I do think that the books are linked together through the unfortunate fact that I wrote them. I never consciously tried to develop a style, but I have a lot of limitations as a writer, and those limitations may well be described as a style. It's probably the kindest term available. Certainly the books are thematically similar. As I mentioned above, I do primarily write about romantic relationships and about friendship. Those seem to me like themes large enough to be explored for a lifetime. I'm sure other people feel differently. It certainly wouldn't be unfair to point out that my books are all pretty similar to one another. I agree there are resemblances, but maybe I'm more comfortable with that than other people would be, because it's also true of some of my favorite novelists. I wish you guys could see Bailey's reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine it. Well, like, that almost makes me more mad. That makes me want to make it a two-star, because it feels like she's, she's like, she knows this in her heart, and she's being defensive, and I think she's becoming a parody of herself, and she knows that, and she doesn't want to acknowledge it. I think Bailey doesn't support female artists. No. Yeah, I, that's what I'm taking from this. That's what I'm hearing here. Pedros, if you agree with me, like, shout off in the comments, because I just, um, thank you for for those facts, they did infuriate me, but it's not your fault. It's <laughs> Sally Rooney. All this to say, I do like Sally Rooney. I'm going to give her another shot, but I just think maybe she should choose another setting and or characters. That's all I'm going to say. I feel fairly confident that she won't. Sally Rooney, you're on notice. Beautiful world. Where are you by Sally Rooney? Three stars. Nice. Now, Andrew, do you have anything to lighten the mood? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of tension here against an author we all respected up until Bailey decided to, to start a controversy with the literary world. She started it. I do have a game, if that's what you're asking. Yes. All right. The name of the game this week, um, you may remember that uh, the book I read was about Vikings, and one of the countries that was discussed a lot was Norway. Um, so the name of the game this week is Norway or No Way. Oh, yes. Mm. I may have come up with the name of the game before I came up with the game. I love it. <laughs> so the way this game works is I am going to list elements of Norse slash Viking mythology slash life that are either true or made up. You will each have turns and you will say Norway if you think it's true or no way if you think it's false. Sweet. Some of these may have come up during our, our podcast. So you might, there are some that might have been spoiled and could be free points. I will try to distribute them evenly because we're not going to buzz in because Toby games the system. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to do it turn based. We're going to have, I'm going to flip a coin and whoever it heads, it's Bailey, tails, it's Toby who goes first. It is heads. So Bailey gets to go first. Again, I'll read the fact and you say Norway if you think it's true or no way if you think it's false. I got it. Vikings frequently traveled as far as Istanbul and Constantinople and Jerusalem. Norway. That is correct. One point for Bailey. <laughs> Excellent. They often uh, made that trip and they might have gone as far east as China or Japan. Cool. Wow. All right, Toby, you ready? I'm ready. Odin's horse, Sleipnir, has eight legs. His name is Sleepnir? Like a sleepy horse? S-L-E-I-P-N-I-R. 
Sleep near. I love it. I just imagine he's like on a big pillow. Um, <laughs> Norway. That is also correct. Uh-oh, you guys know your facts. That was just a guess, honestly. I was just like, sounds like some kind of freaky Norse stuff they would have. Freaky, freaky stuff. <laughs> All right, so you both have one point. Good start. Bailey. Yeah. Ivar the Boneless got his nickname for cowardice at a major battle. No, 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 no way. That is also correct. Bailey has another point. Ivar the Boneless um, was a chieftain slash sort of king. He may have had a condition that his bones broke very easily. It also could be a synonym for the fact that his legs didn't work. So he may have um, not had use of his legs. Did they call him Mr. Glass? No, they called him Ivar the Boneless. <laughs> oh, okay. You monster. Shout out to Unbreakable. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So well done. Bailey has two points. Toby has one. Toby, your turn. Mm-hmm. Racism was not a major issue in Viking culture. I'm going to say no way. That is incorrect. <gasps> there is no record of them having uh, like slurs for people of other races, even though they had contact. And the way Neil Price explains it, at the very least, is there was a belief that the thing you were in was just a shell. And what mattered is the spirit that you had inside of you. So people didn't really care about outward appearances that much. And everybody transformed into the same color wolf. So, you know. There you go. So I'm sorry, Toby, that is incorrect. You are trailing two to one, but there's still time to catch up. Ugh. Vikings have very little written record because nearly 99.5% of the population was illiterate. Ooh, I'm going to say no way. I think that they weren't illiterate, but they just used an oral tradition. That is correct. Yeah! There's a record that most people could read based on where they put runestones, runey stones, runester stones, Mm -hmm. um, as well as some, like, casual sort of graffiti that's been found. So that's Mm -hmm. correct, and the reasoning is correct, and Bailey's sort of running away with this. So, Toby, you got to get this right to keep pace. Thanks for encouraging me, (laughs) Danger. Was the graffiti like Thor was here? but spelled W-U-Z. <laughs> All right, Toby, your turn. Mm-hmm. Bluetooth technology is named after a Viking king, Harold Bluetooth. Um, no, no way. I believe it's a rune, isn't it? That is incorrect. Oh. Well, it's okay. You can still, Bailey, if Bailey gets um, everything else wrong, you can still tie. Harold Bluetooth is where the name comes from. The symbol is two runes. Oh, okay. So you're right um, about the runes, but it does come from the name of the king, Harold Bluetooth, who was one of the like first conquering kings of Denmark, though he got iced by his son. Can I get a, a half point so that I can lose with a little more dignity to Bailey? Sure, you get a half point. You get half. You get half. Shut up, Bailey. You don't get to give out half points. <laughs> Bailey, so this is a this is for the win. Thor's dog, Ragenwolf, <laughs> has two heads, one of which is always awake. I think it's got more heads. I say no way. And Bailey has won the game. Yeah! I don't think Thor even had a dog. Skull! 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 Congratulations, Bailey. You have won the game. You can choose which hall you want to go to after your death. I want to throw in a couple of the other facts. This one's a little gross. In a burial, there was a sacrifice of two horses that were found. The way they did it was they cut the horses in half and put them together the wrong way. Guys, no! (laughs) I'm going to say no way, Andrew. No way. No, that is true. (laughs) No, I'm I'm sticking with no way. During Ragnarok, which is actually how it's pronounced apparently, oh. Um, oh. the souls who have been in hell, or how, will sail on a boat up to the surface that's made of human fingernails. Ooh. All the people who have fingernails will, be, will make into this boat, and it's called the nail boat. Wait, this is a true fact? Well, it's what their mythology is. Well, but they believe it to they be believe, true. They believe it to be true. No, no way. That wasn't in the Thor movie. <laughs> well, Andrew, even though I lost that game, that was an amazing game. Good job. Skull. Skull. Woo. Well, now's the time when we let Dylan outside of his longboat. It's time for Dylan to choose books at random from our shelves to read next. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. 
Well, here's the thing. I'm ready to raid Andrew's bookshelf and find the most valuable items that I can plunder. Is he reading the novelization of National Treasure? Ooh, wait. Never mind. Hold on. I'm switching his book. No. <laughs> Such as all his finest furs and diamonds and gold. That's right. You have number 28, The Goldfinch by Donna Tart. Ooh, oh. well, I don't think we've had a Donna Tart. This is exciting. I, I have, it, yeah, we haven't had a Donna Tart, and I've never read Donna Tart. Mm-hmm. I'm excited oh. about this. Uh, yeah, I don't know a lot about it, except that the movie wasn't good, so I won't watch the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that there was a year that everybody was reading it, but it was a big book. And so I also have it on my shelf, but haven't read it. I think that's so. part of why I haven't started it. Oh. I, I bought it during hype time. But then was like, it is 700 pages. I read this book when it was buzzy, like when it came out. So I will give you my dim recollections. Yeah, I'm excited to, you know, hear what you think, Andrew. Okay. And I think (laughs) Bailey also has it on her shelf. So Bailey might be joining in on this. I'm going to set my intention that I'm going to do it. Well, (laughs) it depends on what you get, Bailey, and how long it takes you to finish your next book. Uh Uh-oh. Because, like, you know, it could take you a few days, weeks, years, even, even a hundred years. Oh no. That's right, Bailey. <laughs> yes. Yes. You yes, have yes. number oh, no. 46, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Oh, no. <laughs> Good luck. Boom. Boom. Guys. Boom. 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 It's finally time. It's happening. It's happening. Pedro's will know this has been on my shelf and I started it, stopped reading it with a hundred pages to go like a fool mm. in 2009. And now it's time to go back in. This is on you. You should have just powered through this. You're correct. Yeah. I could have finished it in like two hours. Pedro's, if you wanted to know what Bailey thought of the goldfinch, too bad. <laughs> Uh, I just have to figure out, maybe I'll read the audiobook to catch up and then read the last 100 pages. You should start reading it. Yeah, start reading and see how much you remember it. So uh, another glance into the past pages, um, there was a lovely time when Dylan did the choosing and just kind of told us what our books were. So if you want to live in that lovely time before he did this kind of weird, ominous thing where he describes them in ways that are hard to understand, go listen to our early episodes. I like it. I like it sometimes. Other times, (laughs) I feel like my brain has broken. (laughs) All right. Well, in two weeks on the podcast, I will be finally reading 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And Toby's reading The Body in the Library by Agatha Christie. Whoa, heavy hitters. I got to start doing that research soon. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. If you're a disaffected millennial wandering around Dublin after your stint at Trinity, go on to iTunes, rate us five stars. You know how to do it. You're, you're handy with technology. And it also helps uh, spread the word about our podcast, and it, and it really makes us feel good. And if you really want to write us uh, a review, we'd love that too. You can make it as bleak, uh, maybe add a little sexy in there you know just do whatever you want but rate us five stars and give us a review we love it and if you're friends with sally rooney maybe don't recommend this episode to recommend <laughs> other ones um, because word of mouth is our best way of finding new listeners i'm still on your side sally so come on to the other backlog um but yeah seriously tell people you think might be interested in this it does get us new listeners and our listenership is growing and it's always good to have uh more people on the ride with us uh, thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books. books.